Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the shoe fetish slayer. But first, your true crime headlines. In Nova Scotia, a gunman disguised as a police officer went on a 12-hour shooting rampage, leaving at least 18 dead in the largest mass shooting in Canada's history. Canadian authorities were investigating 16 crime scenes around Nova Scotia, several of which had been set ablaze with victims inside. Police believe that more victims may be identified as the burned structures are searched. The 51-year-old gunman wore a police uniform and made his car look like a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Cruiser, allowing him to avoid detection as he traveled from one crime scene to the next. Authorities say that he knew some of the victims, but others appear to have been targeted at random. The gunman was killed after a shootout with police. It is believed that he acted alone, and no motive for his rampage has been released. In a statement released after the attack, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asked that the media avoid showing the gunman's picture or using his name, requesting that he not be given the gift of infamy. Trudeau announced an online vigil for the victims as Canada remains under stay-at-home orders due to the coronavirus pandemic. A Louisiana pastor who was recently charged with violating the state's stay-at-home order by holding church services is again facing charges, this time for aggravated assault. Tony Spell, pastor of the Life Tabernacle Church in Baton Rouge, was arrested after nearly striking a protester with a church bus last Sunday. Witness video showed the pastor driving the bus down the church's driveway and onto the shoulder of the road, slamming on his brakes just a few feet from where a protester was standing. Spell was booked into the East Baton Rouge Parish Prison on Tuesday and released a few hours later. An arrest warrant was also issued for another member of the church, Nathan Thomas, who is accused of swerving his pickup truck off the road and nearly striking a protester. A Utah couple were gunned down in their home in the town of West Jordan, about 15 miles south of Salt Lake City, and an acquaintance of the family is the prime suspect in their murder. 31-year-old Tony Butterfield was found shot to death in the backyard of his home early Saturday morning. His wife, 30-year-old Catherine Butterfield, was found shot to death inside the house. The couple's three children, all under the age of four, were asleep upstairs at the time of the incident and were unharmed. Police are looking for Albert Enoch Johnson, age 31. He is 5'10 and about 270 pounds, and police believe that he may have received stab wounds during a fight with Tony Butterfield before the murders. Johnson's wife, 29-year-old Sina Ann Johnson, was arrested and booked into the Salt Lake County Jail for investigation of obstruction of justice and tampering with evidence. Police say that she was in contact with her husband after the incident and admitted to disposing of evidence. She is being held without bail. Today, what happened to the young women who vanished from Portland in the late 1960s? But first, a quick break. Social distancing can get pretty lonely. So now, more than ever, I need my best fiends. 
Best Fiends is the app that engages my brain with challenging but fun puzzle games and lets me get out of lockdown in my apartment and get into a beautiful world of deserts, frozen hills, and cute animated characters. The game is simple. The good guys are the bugs, and the bad guys are the slugs. Complete the puzzles to defeat the slugs as you travel through the world of Minutia, collecting keys and unlocking new fiends along the way, like Brittle the Housefly, Edward the Mosquito, Gordon the Scorpion, and my best fiend, Pop the Axolotl. One of the things I love about true crime is that the more you dig into the story, the more layers you uncover. And that's what's great about Best Fiends too. The more I play, the more fun it gets. And with new monthly updates, themed challenges, and holiday puzzles, the adventure never gets old. This is my pandemic must play. So the next time you need a break from the news cycle, download Best Fiends free. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already. With new levels, events, and characters added every month, it's hours of fun at your fingertips and can even be played offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Love TV but hate the size of your cable bill? I think we all do. Philo is your solution. Philo has everything you need, live and on demand, for just $20 a month. For you true crime junkies, there's no better way to watch. Philo has ID, Lifetime, A&E, plus more than 50 other channels like MTV, VH1, BET, Vice, Comedy Central, History, Nickelodeon, Paramount, A&E, Discovery. The list goes on and on. They even have the Trial Network. Never miss a minute of favorites like The First 48, Homicide Hunter, Killing Eve, RuPaul's Drag Race, The Walking Dead, The Daily Show, and so much more. Plus classics like Law and & Order and Friends. Save hundreds a month on TV. Philo is the most affordable way to watch at a time when everyone could use some entertainment in their life. Philo is cord-free, commitment-free, hassle-free, has unparalleled customer service, and no contracts. And with Philo's unlimited DVR, you can save all of your favorite shows and watch on your own schedule. Plus, Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, so everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. So you'll never fight again over who gets to pick what to watch. Watch from your phone, laptop, tablet, or TV with Roku, Fire TV, Apple TV, or Android TV. It's easy to use and super easy to sign up. Now more than ever, Philo believes that great TV shouldn't cost an arm and a leg. It should be accessible to everyone, and saving money shouldn't mean giving up the shows and channels that you love. Philo is TV for everyone. Sign up today at philo.tv slash mm, and you'll get 25% off your first two months. That's philo.tv slash mm. 
Welcome back to Murder Minute. Now, the story of the shoe fetish serial killer. During the winter of 1968, Portland saw some of its coldest temperatures in history. Walking outside in the snow-coated city, you could see your breath puff out like fog. Meanwhile, another kind of chill filtered through the region as women began vanishing. 19-year-old Linda Slauson had recently moved from Olmsted County in southeastern Minnesota to Portland, where she worked in door-to-door encyclopedia sales. From doors closing in your face to many never even opening, that work wasn't easy. The freezing temperatures made it even tougher. Companies saw huge amounts of turnover, so it wasn't surprising to Linda's employer when she failed to show up at the office after a shift. But her mother and sister were alarmed when she didn't return home. Had she slipped on the ice and injured herself, been involved in an accident? For months upon months, they wouldn't know. Newspaper articles described Linda as petite, blonde, and close to her family, which included five siblings, most of whom still lived in Minnesota. A school photo shows the young woman with a thoughtful look in her eyes, below thick, blunt-cut bangs. But nothing seemed to draw up leads about her whereabouts, For her family, this new normal of life without her somehow had to go on, fear and confusion about what happened haunting their every day. Nearly a year later, in November 1968, Jan Whitney, a 23-year-old medical student, was driving home for Thanksgiving when her car broke down. Most likely, she was having battery problems, the cold weather making it difficult to hold a charge. Regardless of the cause, her car stopped moving and her much-anticipated holiday plans were seeming less feasible. Like many med students, she had longed for a break from intense studying, not to mention her family's home cooking. When a man pulled over, offering to help her, it must have seemed like her lucky day. Any relief was short-lived, though. Jan's abandoned car was later found at a rest stop, and her family never saw or heard from her again. The following spring, 19-year-old Karen Sprinker was waiting for her mother in the parking garage of a department store where they had planned to meet for lunch. By the time her mom arrived, Karen was gone. Less than a year later, another slight blonde woman, 22-year-old Linda Sully, vanished. She too was last seen at a shopping center parking lot. The part-time student and secretary had been shopping for a birthday gift for her boyfriend, That same day, a 15-year-old girl was accosted by a man who used a plastic gun to try to force her into his car. When she managed to break free, he panicked and drove off. Around this time, it wasn't uncommon for girls to disappear for a while, only to turn up again in a place like Haight-Ashbury, the birthplace of 1960s counterculture. But these young women weren't part of that movement— Loved ones and friends were certain something horrible had happened, and tragically, they were right. In May of 1969, a local named Sam Wallace helped confirm their worst fears. He was fishing for bass and panfish in the Long Tom River when he spotted what appeared to be a large bundle of rags floating near the surface. Stepping closer, he gasped in horror. The bundle wasn't rags at all, but a human body. 
he rushed to the nearest gas station to phone the police. Investigators discovered that the remains were those of Linda Salee. Around the same time, a man named Jerry Brudos, a 30-year-old electrician, had been phoning Oregon State University students, saying he was a lonely Vietnam veteran and asking women to join him for dates. Eventually, one student, whose name has been protected, said yes. She declined at first, saying she had to study. Brudos told her he had this new studying technique to share with her, one he had picked up at Walter Reed Hospital when he returned from overseas. Would she like to learn about it? Sure. So she agreed to meet him in the women's dormitory lounge. There, the man she described as tall and fleshy with red hair and freckles convinced her to go for a ride with him to get sodas. During that drive, she later told police, he started blurting out disturbing comments. He prompted her to, quote, think of something sad, think of those two girls who were killed, adding, that was an awful thing to have happen, and how did you know I would bring you back home and not take you to the river and strangle you? When he told her he needed to fix his car engine, the student recalled newspaper stories about the bodies of murdered women found in the river, weighted down by car parts. Eventually, he took her back to her dorm. Although she was terrified of him, she felt the need to play along when he asked if he could see her again. Sure, she'd love that. When he called her a few days later requesting a second date, the young woman alerted the police, who stood by, ready to take action. Looking into the suspect's past added mighty fuel to investigators' growing suspicions. Born in South Dakota, Brudos had long been obsessed with women's clothing, especially tall, angular shoes. Fetishes for clothing or high heels aren't red flags on their own. Foot fetishism is one of the most common types, one that psychologists have linked with early childhood imprinting and conditioning experiences when arousal is paired with a non-sexual object. Feet can also seem more welcoming for people who have sexual function issues like erectile dysfunction. As psychologist Mark Griffiths put it, feet don't demand the same perfect performance. Usually fetishes are pretty harmless. But this man's seemed connected not only with arousal, but with intense hatred toward his mother, who he claimed always wore sensible shoes. And he didn't just get off on seeing the apparel. At age 17, he spent time in a psychiatric ward after stealing shoes and underwear and attacking two teenage girls. He threatened one of the girls with a knife, forcing her to strip down naked. Doctors determined he was immature but not dangerous and sent him away with advice to grow up less than a year later. When police searched the man's home, they found suspicious items including rope, wires, and images of the victims enough to obtain a warrant for his arrest. When they brought him in for questioning, Brudos confessed to three of the four murders in grotesque detail. He spoke of holding on to one of the bodies after killing the woman so he could dress her up and sawing off one of her feet to store in his freezer before dropping the rest in a river. He stored stolen clothing and body parts in a secret room in his house where even his wife and two kids weren't allowed. This off-limits area functioned as both his slaughterhouse and torture chamber. He also admitted to engaging in necrophilia, sex with a corpse, and using electrical shocks to make the bodies 
dance. He soon gleaned two nicknames, the Shoe Fetish Slayer and the Lust Killer. Lust is a misnomer, given that these types of crimes aren't about desire so much as the need to control and dominate. Police charged Brudos with four counts of first-degree murder. At first, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but two clinical psychiatrists and five psychologists examined him and determined he was not insane, deeming him fit to stand trial. Soon after, he changed his plea to guilty and received three consecutive life sentences for the murders of Jan Whitney, Linda Salee, and Karen Sprinker young women who were just beginning their adult lives. Linda's body was never found, so those charges were dropped due to insufficient evidence. A black and white photo of Brudos being walked out of the courtroom in handcuffs appears in New York Daily News. He's wearing a checkered suit coat, his head low, a look of shame or perhaps defeat on his face. The article asserts that Brudos tried wearing women's clothing and shoes, but they hadn't looked very good on him. So eventually, he moved on in search of prettier models and, quote, four of his living paper dolls died. In August of 1969, Brudos's wife Darcy was charged with aiding and abetting him on at least one of the killings. She reportedly ignored obvious clues about her husband's crimes, such as the time he brought home a paperweight consisting of a real human breast cast in resin. She was found not guilty. The following year, she changed her name, filed for divorce, and obtained a court order to keep her kids from contacting their father in prison. During his incarceration, Brudos wrote to women's shoe companies requesting catalogs, which he stockpiled in his cell for what he called a substitute for porn. He filed numerous appeals over the years, including one alleging that a photo taken of him with one of his victims could not prove his guilt because it was someone else's corpse. He didn't mention whose. Finally, in 1995, the parole board told him he would have no chance of release, then or ever. He died behind bars of natural causes in 2006. Many people believe that at the bottom of the Willamette River lie additional victims of this killer waiting to be found. When Jan Whitney's sister, Cindy Elliott Aurora, learned of his death, She told reporters she was sad and relieved, adding, I hope he spends all eternity in hell. At the time of his death, Jan would have been 62 and a grandmother. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.